Lord, as we open your word, your word is truth. We ask you to kick down lies that we believe, lies that we've embraced, lies that we've lived. And we'll be true worshipers. We'll seek you in spirit and truth. I ask you to kick down lies today that enslave us, that hold us back, that cripple us, that keep us from the abundant life that you came to give. Lies from our past, lies from our religion, lies from, from the world. Set us free, Lord, by your truth. We want to know the truth. We want the truth to set us free. So we open your word now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and dismiss if you have a if you are a child or a young adult, young young person in grades three through six, uh, you can go back to your class if you like, or you're welcome to stay here. Uh, I've already, at the beginning of the service, I let you know that we're going to be in John chapter six, so I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it. If you have it on your phone, you can open it on your phone. I believe brief or shortly it'll be displayed up here on the screen, so there's plenty of options for us to to look at God's word, and I just want to let you know that uh, I, I've said this before, but as I, when I come to church, when we drive to church uh, on the mornings that I preach, uh, it's become a routine, but we try to not make it just like routine, but, uh, you know, as we pull out of the driveway, I'll kind of say almost the same thing every single week. Uh, my kids probably roll their eyes, but it's like, Guys, I've got to preach today, and I really need God's help. And and then we pray. You know, I ask I ask for prayers. And um, one of the things that we always pray is that I would say things that are true, say things that are right, say things that are will help you all here today. And um, if I say things that aren't right or aren't true or aren't helpful, I'll either forget it, it'll be pointed out, it'll be revealed, it'll be shown. Um, and so that's my prayer today. We're going to look at Scripture. And this is, I mean, if you ask Bible scholars, people that, uh, even casual readers, people that are uh, lay people that are serious students, and you said, you know, what's maybe the hardest passage, what would be the hardest passage to preach in, in the Gospel of John? You know, uh, you can find some easy ones to preach for sure. John 15, John chapter 3, uh, John chapter 1, you know. I like John, at the end of John, uh, when he's talking to Peter, there's, there's many memorable passages, but probably the hardest to preach, would, many people would say, is John, this part of John chapter 6. So, um, here we are today. Uh, and so, I want to set the stage. There's a, a large portion of scripture to get to, and I'll do the best that I can. And um, I've asked God's help, and I, I ask God help me again. Um, as we look at your word. So we've had the feeding of the 5,000 and we've had the crossing. Jesus walking on water, crossing the sea. And what I want to say about it is John mentioned in John chapter six, verse four. He said uh, when this happened, the Jewish Passover festival was near. So the, the timeline over this, uh, you know, culturally uh, to the Jews would be the, the period, the time, the celebration of the Passover. So that would be on the on the in the forefront of their minds 
as they're going through this. And uh, the parallels between the Exodus, really, and what Jesus has done here are uh, unmistakable to people that know the Old Testament, or people, especially people who, for whom it's their, their personal history. And so there's parallels. You know, um, obviously Jesus provides bread from heaven, which will be a, a big theme of what we're studying. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain. Um, similar to Moses, he asked a question to his disciples, which is testing, which you can see in uh, Exodus 16. Um, when the people were fed, it was all gathered. There was none left over, none kept for the next day, just like manna from heaven. Um, and then immediately after that, we see Jesus delivering his disciples through the sea. There's a storm that blows up. These are experienced fishermen, but they're frightened for their lives. Jesus walks on the water. He gets in the boat, and immediately they're on the other shore. They were probably in the middle of the lake, three and a half miles out. Um, and immediately they're delivered to the other shore. So there's elements to this story some of which the crowd would know, some of which only the disciples would know, that are parallel uh, to the Exodus, when the Israelites were taken out of slavery, out of Egypt. And in fact, the people there came to the conclusion, in John six fourteen, the people saw the sign Jesus performed, so they saw it, they perceived it, and they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That is, means that there was a uh, prophecy in the Old Testament that one like Moses would come, a Messiah, one like Moses would come, a deliverer of the people. And it says that Jesus, knowing what they intended, they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so they saw that what Jesus had done, they came to the conclusion that this is the prophet to come, and their actions they desired to take was to forcibly make Jesus king anticipating an earthly kingdom, uh, a deliverance from their political enemies, expelling the Romans probably uh, from, from the promised land, and establishing uh, a political kingdom on earth. And Jesus was not about that. He understood that was their desire, and he left. He went up on the mountain. And so we come to the next morning is our passage in Scripture in, in John six twenty two. And uh, so they had come to this conclusion. Jesus is this prophet that was foretold. He is this Messiah. They had seen uh, verifiable proof. They'd experienced it. They've, they had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They'd partaken of it. And on the next day, verse 22, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw there'd only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. And so John's giving us background information. The people understood. He's verifying the miracle of Jesus walking on water. All these people saw the disciples leave by themselves in a boat. There was only one boat there. Jesus had no way of getting to the other side. He wasn't with them. But when they woke up, the disciples were gone. Jesus was gone. And it says other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And some commentators said these boats probably arrived because they were blown there by the storm. And for the people that understood the geography of the area, they would understand this storm was blowing. It brought these boats to this other side, perhaps, um, which again verifies the context that there was a storm. Jesus didn't leave in the boat. It's uh, evidence of the miracle. 
And uh, so when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. All right? And so they're seeking Jesus. That is, uh, on the face of it, a good, you know, that's a good description. Like, they're seeking Jesus. That seems like they're on the right track. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, he could have gone into the story. He said, well, I walked here, you know. And they said, you walked here across the water, you know. And I got in the boat, and immediately it was on the other shore. Um, but he, he doesn't go into detail. He doesn't explain himself. And he answers them saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the, fa- the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And so we have this back and forth, this conversation uh, between Jesus and the crowds. I don't know if these are multiple people speaking, if there's an appointed spokesperson. Uh, But Jesus says, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And so he's saying, you're here because you're hungry. They ate yesterday, they got their fill, they woke up, and they're hungry again. And I think in their minds, they were connecting, you know, they made this connection between Jesus and Moses. And they're like, well, you know, in Moses' time, the people got bread every day. They woke up and they gathered manna every morning. And so when they wake up, there's no Jesus, there's no bread, there's a cognitive dissonance. They're, They're trying to reconcile these facts. And so their primary concern was their bellies, their, their earthly subsistence, existence. And they're concerned about this bread, and they're expecting that Jesus will do things in a certain way. And what we see throughout the Gospel of John, first of all, is people misinterpreting the actions of Jesus. They misinterpret what he does. Their expectations are misplaced in that he doesn't do what they expect him to do, and they misunderstand, or worse, they twist the things that he says to give themselves an excuse to reject him. We see this over and over in John. We see the woman at the well. Jesus says, I will give you living water. And she says, fill up my cup. She wants her literal cup filled up with actual water, some sort of, you know, 
Like you go to the gas station. Uh, I don't know why I thought of this. It's like you go to the gas station and you buy some water. You know, they make all kinds of claims, don't they? Like I go to, I go to Casey's and I, I should just pack a water bottle, but I, I get water sometimes when it's really hot and there's, there's water that claims to have uh, a negative pH and there's water that claims to have extra minerals and vitamins. There's water that claims to have, you know, she wanted just a water, like water with a little bit of something extra so that her daily routine was made a little bit easier. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, can I go into my mother's womb a second time? Should I do that? He misunderstands what Jesus is saying. And we're going to see this on, a, on an epic scale. These people are going to misunderstand what Jesus says. He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Unless, and this is the context of the Passover. Unless you eat my flesh or, you know, you, you take this bread, you don't have any life in me. And they twist his words and they misunderstand it. And they're offended at his metaphor. And here's the thing I notice about Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't tone it down. He doesn't make it more palatable. He doesn't make it easier. And I'm getting ahead of myself. But he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You don't have life. And they, I believe they willfully misunderstand the language that he's using, and he accelerates it, and he amplifies it. What I see Jesus doing here that stood out to me is as the gospel goes on, he gives greater and greater evidence for who he is. He turns water to wine. He heals sick. He feeds the 5,000. We're going to see him raise Lazarus from the dead. We're going to see him do many miracles. We're going to see him himself resurrected. We see him elevating the evidence that he provides for who he is. And you'd think if he was trying to win the crowds over, you just, you elevate the evidence and you kind of uh, de-escalate the inflammatory language. But Jesus is forcing these people into a decision to reveal the condition of their heart. He elevates the evidence and he escalates the language. He doesn't back down on the claims of who he is. He doesn't back down the claims of what we must do to partake in what God is doing. He escalates it. He escalates it. And so these people are coming, and I, I mentioned at the beginning of the service, they've witnessed a miracle. They've partaken of it. They've experienced the goodness of Jesus. They believe he can do it again, and they come to him, and they ask him to do it again. And I said, I have sympathy for them. I've experienced God do things in my life that I wish. There were seasons of my life where it seemed like he was speaking and he was moving and amazing, miraculous things were happening. Uh, it was happening in my own life and the people around me. It was exciting. It was powerful. And then there's seasons of life where it seems that doesn't happen. I know you've done it. I know you can do it. I have faith that you can do it. And I don't understand why it's not happening in this situation. I have sympathy for these people. But ultimately, when he explains what's going on, it's deeper than the bread that you can hold in your hands. It's deeper than water that you can drink. Something significant and powerful and eternal 
is happening is deeper than your political ambitions, your hopes for the world, your hopes for justice, for things to set right, to be set right, for your enemies to be punished. What God is doing is bigger and deeper and better. And he's trying to help them see it. And they reject the claims that he's making. So you see, they say, surely this is the one who's to come. By the end of this chapter, we're going to see them walk away. He gave them compelling and convincing evidence. But when the details weren't what they hoped for and expected, they walked away. I think verse 27, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to settle here. Uh, I feel like I need to chew on this and, and meditate on this and study this for a long time. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him. The father has set his seal. He's saying, uh, I believe he's referencing his baptism when God said, this is my son in whom I've well pleased. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's doing these miracles. God's seal, his evidence is, is uh, clear to the people. In verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And from verse 28 to verse 29, I want you to, I want you to pay attention here for a second. They said, what must we be doing to do the works of God? What's at the end of that word works? A little bit of English here. Well, it's a letter. We know our letters. What's at the end of the word works? An S, which makes that noun plural. All right. And Jesus answered them, this is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. There's so much here. Uh, I think basically Paul's writings, the, all of Paul's writings are examining this idea that the Jews are looking for works. They're looking for lists. They're looking for laws. You know, Moses brought them the Ten Commandments down from the mountain. They're looking for this teaching from Jesus of these rules for them to follow so that they can uh, participate and earn their way into what God is doing. And Jesus said, there's no works that you do to get in on what God is doing. This is the work that you do, and that work is believing in him whom he has sent. This is the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. The work of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that you believe in the one that God had sent. We're singing these songs about God pursuing us, God chasing us down, him running after us. He sent his son, and his son died on the cross as a sacrifice. He pursued us, and all we have to do is to believe, to respond. I was thinking about them being hungry. You know, my kids tell me they're hungry a lot. You know, like, I'm, <laughs> for the first time in my life, I'm like, I mean, uh, you know, I'm really concerned about being able to, like, I'm really concerned about bread, you know, like, can I put bread on the table? Can I put enough bread on the table, right? I've got boys that are, my Asher's 11, Callum just turned 8, Brecken, Brecken just turned 4 last weekend, so we had a couple birthdays, and, uh, you know, they're like trying to be athletes. They eat a lot of food, right? I'm concerned about this. I hear I'm hungry a lot, and I was thinking about this, like, I'll have a kid that's on the couch, 
10 feet away from the table and they'll tell me they're hungry and I'll set food on the table and they'll keep saying they're hungry. You know, they'll keep saying they're hungry. There's food on the, there's food on the table. Or sometimes I'll just say, there's food in the refrigerator. You can get it yourself, you know, if it's not a mealtime. <laughs> Jesus is saying, there is a table for you. They're telling him they're hungry. And he's saying there's a feast. All you have to do is come. Jesus does pursue us. I was thinking about it with this song. He does pursue us. There's no mountain he won't climb up and all that stuff. You know, like, he pursues us, and yet there's a final step that we must take. You have to come to him. You have to come to him. If you're hungry, you can, we can say that you're hungry all you want. You can tell him you're hungry over and over and over. We sing it sometimes. You can tell him you're hungry. He says, here's a feast. We have to partake of it. We have to partake of it. It reminds me of Revelation 3. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, there's a meal. There's a feast. You can come. I'll sup with you. He's saying, I have prepared a feast. I have prepared a table. You have these deep needs. It has been accomplished. It is finished. It is met. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no rules to follow. There's no ritual to perform. Come to me. Take and eat. It's so clear here. They want a list of works to do. And he says, all you have to do is believe in me. Believe in the one that God sent. And it takes a turn at this moment. It takes a turn. So they said to him, what sign do you do? They want more evidence. They were convinced by the evidence he gave. But when he explains what's going on, they're not so convinced anymore. They're not so convinced. They are, in this moment, rejecting the explanation he gave. And they're, they're blinding themselves to the evidence that they've already beheld. They've already believed. And they're asking for more. They go on to say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're asking Jesus to do it again, to give them more bread. He has done this. They watched. He blessed the food. He gave thanks. That word is the word Eucharisto. It's the word we get Eucharist, where our communion comes from. He gave thanks for the food, and it multiplied as he broke it in his hands. They watched that miracle be performed. And they saw it from his hands. Moses didn't go give them bread from his hands, although they're crediting Moses with it. They went out and gathered it in the morning. It came from heaven. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What you're wanting is so far below from what God is offering is what he's saying right there. You want the bread from heaven? We're going to see in verse 35, he makes the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. You know what, verse 34, I think, you know, like, this is not a bad response. Like, I see him turning back. There's this wavering. They say, 
sir, give us this bread always. So they're expressing a desire of their heart. They want this thing that Jesus is talking about. But when he says, I am this thing, they don't want him. They reject Jesus. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I'm going to stop there for a second. This invitation of Jesus is to come to him, to come to him. In John chapter 5, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and said, You search the scriptures, thinking that in them, uh, I'll read it so I don't misquote it. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Throughout this gospel is an invitation of Jesus to come to him, to come to him. Scripture tells us he's the stone the builders rejected. The stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone, the capstone. They're rejecting Jesus because it's not how they imagined it in their mind. And some of you may be in that place where you're walking with Jesus. Uh, I would say that's different from trying out Christianity, trying out church. I think there's a vast difference there. But it may be different than you imagined it. You know? And I, like I said, I have sympathy for people that are in that place. You may be in a career, you know, like you've chosen a path, and this is different than I imagined it. You may be in a situation with your children. This is different than I imagined it. You may be in a marriage where you're saying to yourself, this is different than I imagined it. There's all kinds of scenarios. You know, you may be in the prime of your life, so to speak, and it's different than you imagined it. And what do you do with that, that difference? What do we do with that? Well, Jesus' invitation is the same, and it exists. And what he's offering is better, is greater, lasts longer than what we could hope for in our day-to-day, in our earthly life. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's using figurative language here. Obviously, those the people that, like you can look at the disciples, they follow Jesus, like they've fully embraced him. They have put their faith in him. Uh, you can look at the books of Acts. They still ate. They still had to have a meal. They still had to take a drink. What he's saying is, I am an inexhaustible resource for your deepest spiritual needs. You're still going to have to eat on earth. You're still going to have to have a drink. You know, that's not what we're talking about. But I'm an inexhaustible resource for your deepest spiritual needs. Verse 36, I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here he's not speaking figuratively. He's speaking very clearly. All those who sent to me, I will lose nothing of all that's been given to me. I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, beholds the Son, and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 40, that word, be, uh, that word who looks on the Son is could be translated behold. It's actually in the Greek, it's the word that we get the word theater from. It, it kind of implies that you behold the actions before you and scrutinize them and make a determination. Jesus is saying, look at the actions of my life. Behold what God is doing in your midst. The lame walk, the blind see, bread from heaven, miracles, the lost are saved. Behold what's going on, and then believe. That's the work of the Father. And it's interesting that the Jews had said, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven. Because that whole scene, the, the fatal flaw, if, it, if you would, of the Israelites in the wilderness was the grumbling, the grumbling. They, they were dissatisfied with what God had done. You know, when God brought them out of Egypt, it wasn't that they would go through the wilderness. He'd, the purpose of bringing them out of Egypt wasn't the wilderness. He was leading them to the promised land. And I was thinking about this. They're hung up on this bread thing. It's like, you know, my family takes long road trips from time to time. We haven't for a while. We need to get, get on it again. We'll go to, like, beautiful national parks out west. And imagine, like, you know, taking this long road trip. You pull up to somewhere breathtaking like Yosemite Valley. You know, I know, Allison, you love that place. Uh, Glacier National Park, the Grand Canyon. And uh, you pull up. You, you bring your family there, like, you go through this effort, and they're arguing about the snacks they got at the gas station, you know, and they miss the beauty of what's going on. It's like, that is not, we're not, you know, like, I think uh, <laughs> it's kind of sick that, like, Bucky's, you know, like that, it's like a new gas station. It's like a destination in itself. I think our culture is missing the point, you know, like, we're missing the point. And so many times, like, we're caught up on the details of the journey, and we forget the beauty of the destination. Right? God's doing something beautiful. He's bringing us somewhere beautiful. And we can't get hung up on the details. <clears throat> but I'll tell you, like, grumbling in the car on the way to a place can, like, it can, it goes a long way to ruin a trip, you know? These people are grumbling. They're doing exactly what their forefathers did in the wilderness. Exactly what God spoke against. Exactly what caused them to miss the promised land. It's happening again. They grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And surely that rang a bell with some of them. Like when he told them they're grumbling. Hopefully, surely someone said, ah, like uh, that's what our forefathers did. Let's, let's get off the grumbling track. No one can come to me. That's what I find interesting here. Uh, in these verses, church history has debated this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, the meaning, the full meaning of this verse, and we've got down to, we've, we've parsed this out, and we still don't have any conclusions, you know, like that are satisfying to everyone. But Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. That idea that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Church history has gotten hung up on this. It, it's, uh, you know, this is where we get predestination. Uh, we can get ca- the five points of Calvinism. Is this grace, irresistible grace, that God elects a certain amount of people out of the population, irresistibly draws them, and they have no choice in the matter but to Jesus, uh, but to come to Jesus. It's nothing of, you know, there's no agency at all. They're just irresistibly irre- uh, compelled, and so they come. I can live with mystery. There's a, mis- a mystery in the in that, in that God draws people and no one can come. No one of themselves, apart from God's drawing, would come to Jesus. I can claim that. And yet scripture tells us, today if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. I think there's personal agency where you can harden your heart. You can come or you can refuse to come. In John, uh, Jeremiah 31.3, God talks about how he has loved the, his people with an everlasting love, and he has drawn them with an unfailing kindness. God is wooing us to Jesus. God is drawing us to Jesus. He's drawing you. You may feel that. And I do believe, because of the warning in Hebrews, that you can harden your heart to that. And you can choose to misinterpret the evidence and reject Jesus. So the invitation Jesus is giving is, come to me, believe in me, follow me. He quotes the prophet, he said, it's written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard, that's from Isaiah, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he's from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now remember in John 6, 4, he says it was near the Passover. Jesus is speaking of sacrificial language. What did John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. He's referencing the sacrificial system, the Passover lamb. He's saying, the sacrifice that I make, if you partake of that, you will have eternal life. He's pointing here to the cross. And again, the Jews dispute. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I believe there's a degree here of like willful, uh, purposeful, uh, bad faith misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you have to become a cannibal. Nowhere in church history bears that out. Nowhere else in Jesus' teaching. He's saying, I'm the Lamb of God. The sacrifice that I take, it has to be your sustenance. The bread that you want to eat 
It's the bread from heaven. It's me. You take in. You consume. Uh, you are nourished by all that I've done and will do for you. And you will have eternal life. And so we see him escalate it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so that whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So he escalates the rhetoric here. He's saying, oh, you want, you want a stumbling block? You want something to trip over? When I said this in a way that you should understand culturally, historically, religiously, scripturally, he escalates it. And he's saying, you must take in my sacrifice. The sacrifice that I make, the blood that I shed, my body that is broken, which we're about to celebrate by taking communion. We're about to remember. He's saying, you must take in the full sacrifice. You must receive me, not be offended at me. Blessed are those who aren't offended by Jesus. He knows what he's saying is offensive here. He's not calling them to break religious laws. They, they, part of their religious laws, they could not consume any meat. All the blood had to be drained out of it, the kosher laws. They couldn't drink any blood. They couldn't eat it. They couldn't cook with it. He's not asking them to break the rules. He's not asking them. Uh, it's a bad faith uh, complaint that they're making here. But he's saying, you have to understand what's happening. And if you want to willfully reject this and misunderstand, then so be it. Look at the evidence. The evidence speaks loud and clear. They've made the conclusion he's the prophet to come. So what I'll say to you is the invitation of Jesus is the same. Whosoever will, come. He's inviting you to come and to believe in him. He's offering you this life of the ages, this eternal life. I could have go, dove deep into the meaning of eternal life. I could have dove deep into these passages. I could have dove deep into don't work for food that won't spoil. There's so much depth and richness here. But what I want to say to you is what God is intending for you is better than you can imagine. And so if your life isn't what you imagine, it doesn't mean that God has failed you. It just means there's something deeper going on. There's something more abiding, more lasting. But it's a good promise, he says, that I will lose nothing of what he has given me. If God has drawn you to Jesus and you've come to him and you've seen him as beautiful and you believed in him, he won't lose you. It's a beautiful promise. This is a tough passage and it's long. And uh, I probably just, I'm going to rest here and stop here. But um, I want to read to you, it's, I didn't have this prepared, but I'm going to look it up here real quick. Um,
Paul gave the church, Bible scholars, can you help me out? When Paul, Paul wrote in the letter, I give to you the same that I received on the night the Lord Jesus died, he took the cup. What's, what's Corinthians, right? Where's that at? I want to read that real quick to explain this here. Thank you. I'm using my phone here a little bit faster. verse there. Thank you. So this is Paul. He's giving the institutions for the Lord's Supper, which Jesus is clearly pointing to here. What's interesting is John's gospel doesn't have a recording of the Lord's Supper. Uh, John is uh, the other three Gospels are what we call synoptic Gospels. They're giving us a synopsis of Jesus' life. And John is writing and sort of filling in the gaps and assuming that you know the other stories and the details and the backgrounds. And so uh, John actually doesn't include the, the Last Supper. But here's what Paul said. So this is him addressing it. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he he comes. So Jesus is saying, he's pointing to the new covenant when he says these words. Uh, when he says, um, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He's saying, when you partake of the new covenant, when you believe fully and completely in the sacrifice that I made when my body was broken and my blood was shed, and you enter this new covenant, you enter this new way of living, this new life with Jesus, this is what's going on. And so when we take communion, that's what we're remembering. We're saying we're looking at the cross, your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. We're believing that is what gives us this life of the ages, this eternal life, this abundant life. We're trusting in it. We're believing in it. Not that there's a list of works that we have to do in order to get it, to be in on it, our work is to believe. And we're believing and we're remaining faithful. We get to the end of the chapter and the many of the disciples walk away. They walk with him no more. And he says to the twelve, are you going to leave too? He said, where else would we go? We know that you have the words of eternal life. So we're going to take communion. I want to pray for you real quick. All right, Lord, this... Sometimes I, I, I keep saying I sympathize with these people. They said after you taught, I said on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I don't think it's hard, though. It's not hard to accept that you died for us. It's not hard to accept that you 
your Father loved us and sent you to us. When we see you and we understand what you've done, we receive it, Lord, we believe it. We hear your word that you stand at the door and knock. We want to come to your feast. We want to come to your table. We want to come to your supper. We want to come to all that you're offering to tear down the lies that we would believe, the confusion that would be in our heads. Draw us to you, Father. Make Jesus irresistible to us. Enable us to believe and to respond and to remain faithful. Pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that there's many of us who have needs, we have struggles, we have hungers. And we're looking to you. But we look to you because of what you've done. We look to you because of who you are, not just what you can do for us. So as we take communion, help us to remember, help us to believe, we pray in Jesus' name.